This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have NBC's War Telescope as it aired on September 4th, 1943. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. It was originally hosted by war correspondent Morgan Beatty, but Elmer Peterson took over the job in August and hosts this episode. Peterson spends this episode talking to the weather service and pilots about the importance of their role in the bombing raids on Germany. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In place of the program scheduled for this time, the National Broadcasting Company presents its regular Saturday feature from London, War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features Elmer Peterson of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. For his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Elmer Peterson in London, reporting to you once again through the War Telescope. There's one thing about being over here in England these days, you get very conscious of the planning and organization that goes into the war effort. What you also learn here in Britain is that there are a lot of people who work quietly in the background. These people are at work now as Allied troops carve their way into Italy, as Berlin fights the flames left behind by another heavy raid, as the daylight air offensive from here builds up to unheard of proportions. Today, we applaud the fighting men on the ground, in the air, on the high seas. But for a few moments, let's give attention to one of the silent services of this war. A silent service because a great deal can't be said about it. But a service that has played a big role in the landings in Italy. A service that carries a tremendous responsibility in terms of safeguarding of human life and safeguarding the equipment needed to beat the enemy to his knees. The service rendered by the weather forecasters of the Allied war effort. If you walk through the administrative offices of an American airfield here in Britain, you'll see a sign, a sign that reads weather station. Go beyond that sign and you'll find yourself among a group of men who are working with charts and maps and instruments, but also working with the tools of training, experience, intelligence, and good judgment. These are the men who say when weather conditions are right for a bombing mission or a fighter plane sweep. They predict what sort of weather our airmen are going to encounter. They stand at the shoulder of the pilot as he roars away into sunshine or darkness. They stand alongside the bombardier who must have a target to see before he can bomb that target. 
And when those planes are up and away, a tense feeling settles over that airfield. A tenseness that is like a prayer. That is a prayer for the safe return of those airmen. And nowhere is that tenseness more acute than in those rooms marked weather stations. For these weathermen have fought their battle by the time the planes take off. They've matched their knowledge and experience against all the moods and whims of atmospheric conditions. No job could be tougher in its way than that. But before they know for sure whether they've won, they have to wait until the planes come back from that mission. Yes, it hardly needs to be said that this concern about weather is something that plays an important role in modern war. Many a campaign has succeeded, partly at least, because of favorable weather, while many an army has found the weather a bitter, unrelenting enemy, as witnessed the Germans in Russia during the winter. Think of the fog that swirled around the Aleutian Islands, the sudden sandstorms that appeared in North Africa, the torrential rains in Burma. Think how the weather introduced a disturbing note into the landings at Sicily, until smooth seas appeared as the landing boats approached the now-conquered island. Yes, the military experts can map out their campaigns, but they always have to keep in mind the fluctuations in weather. But it's in air operations that weather conditions get the most constant attention. Notice how weather is mentioned in air communiques. You're told that the weather over the target was clear. Sometimes you're told that clouds obscured the target. Then again, you get reports of how Allied planes have to fight their way to and from their assigned targets against winds or snow or intense cold. For there are times when targets must be attacked regardless, when weather, bad weather must be accepted as a hazard. But whenever possible, Allied air operations over here try to take advantage of good weather. In fact, everything humanly possible is being done to anticipate conditions. Today, we hope to give you a little clearer picture of the part being played here in Britain by the men whose job it is to analyze and predict the weather. The men here in Britain are only a part of a small army of Air Corps weathermen now stationed all over the world. But their work is indicative of what is going on. So we have with us today in NBC's London studio, Colonel Anthony Q. Musto of Hot Springs, Virginia. Colonel Musto is Air Force weather officer of the 8th Air Force here in Britain. In addition, he is a regular Army pilot of many years' experience. We also have with us Captain Leonard V. Santoro of Kansas City, Missouri. Now, Captain Santoro is not a weatherman, but he knows a great deal about the importance of weather. As a group bombardier, he participated in no less than 21 raids over enemy territory and was wounded slightly over Bremen. He now serves as aide-de-camp to Major General Ira Aker, the commanding general of the 8th Air Force. So, we're going to get two points of view from two men who are established experts in their field. Now, to begin with, Colonel Musto, am I right in what I've said about the importance of weather? You're entirely correct, Pete. Weather is bound to be the deciding factor in attack from the air. The idea is not only to bomb, but to bomb efficiently, to hit the assigned target as effectively as possible, while safeguarding in every way possible the men whose job it is to go after that target. Well, then, as a meteo meteorological expert, I, I think we better leave that word out of this, Colonel. As an Air Force weatherman, say, how would you explain the duties of your section? Well, I'd say it's this way. We try to give the anticipated and existing weather conditions to the general in command of operations so that he can make plans to fit the existing and anticipated weather conditions. What do you mean, Colonel, when you say we? I mean the weather officers and the enlisted men of the Army Air Force Weather Service. That is to say, the weather forecasters and the weather observers. Well, can you elaborate on that just a little, Colonel? Well, the weather service is composed of specially trained men, men who've been carefully selected and carefully prepared for their job. Up until recently, we took only college graduates to train as weather officers, preferably men trained in engineering and with a solid knowledge of mathematics for the work of weather forecasters. These men then went to school. 
The Army School at Grand Rapids, Michigan, or special courses at such schools as MIT, Caltech, UCLA, University of Chicago, and New York University. Then for weather observers, that is, the reading of instruments, making of weather charts, and so forth, the Army has dipped into the ranks of the enlisted men, choosing men of special intelligence and background. Numerous men of outstanding ability are also sent to forecaster schools and become qualified forecasters, and some of them receive commissions. And let me say here that these enlisted men have done a splendid job. So the weather service colonel is an Army job? Almost entirely. Most of our men have been trained by or for the Army. There may be a few men who worked at weather forecasting before, but very few. After all, it must be remembered that just a few years prior to the war, the American Air Forces had only a small number of trained meteorologists. And now, well, I can't give you any figures, but now we've really gone places. But tell me, Colonel, can a good weather forecaster be made, so to speak? You know, I always thought the one who forecast the picnic weather in my hometown could have done a lot better at something else. Well, to a certain extent, I suppose he can. Although there is a point where training breaks down. There's no question but what some men have a gift for forecasting weather, a sort of intuition. When we get a man like that, we really hang on to him. Well, is there any essential difference, Colonel, between forecasting weather for military operations and forecasting weather in normal times? Yes, a lot of difference. In normal times, you can get reports from all areas. In wartime, the enemy takes every precaution to see to it that you know as little as possible about weather conditions in his own area. As a result, wartime forecasters have a lot less to work with. You might say that it becomes necessary to work with a minimum of information rather than a maximum of information. The weather map has to be extended to cover areas from which no reports are available. Sounds like a lot of work. We keep busy. And not exactly an eight-hour day, I take it. No, it means very long hours of time. You see, in order to forecast weather, the forecaster must study the situation for many hours before he makes a forecast. Then he must keep up with each change of weather as long as he's on that forecast shift. If a very important mission is being planned, the forecaster must remain on duty until the mission is underway. He can't very well pass on his understanding of the weather conditions. So we may have to go 24 hours without sleep. Yes, or even 48 hours at times, with only occasional catnap. Hmm. That's almost as bad as broadcasting for a living colonel. And then, as I understand it, the forecaster is no condition to sleep anyway until he knows for sure how correct he's been. Well, he does go through his share of sweating it out while waiting for the planes to return. We can't, he can't help but feel his responsibility. And I suppose an Air Force weatherman, after all, gets about the same role as the ones at home. If they're right, why, they're supposed to be right. And if they're wrong, why, God help them. Well, we do get ribbed a bit. Then that's quite understandable. How about that, Captain Centauro? Uh, how do the men who do the flying and bombing feel about the weathermen like Colonel uh, Musto here? Well, we can't help but kid them when they don't hit it right on the nose. But they know that the heart we're all for them. We can't help but be. The weather service is too vital to what we do. And the service is doing a great job. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be punching our targets the way we were punching them. Certainly, it can be said that outside of enemy resistance, the biggest and most important factor on the operational side is weather. And daylight bombing especially. There's no use of a bombardier being over a target if he can't see that target. I, I can't understand that, Captain. But tell me, how has it worked out in your own case? Well, Pete, in uh, 21 missions, I only once found weather conditions which made it necessary for me to jettison my bombs. I think that speaks for itself. It certainly does. But can you give us an example, Captain, of how this weather forecasting works out? Well, now, there was one trip to Lorient in France. We were told we would encounter a certain amount of precipitation and cumulus clouds on the way to the target, but that over the target, the weather would be clear. And when we got underway, we found just a little more precipitation and a little more cloud than was forecast. It was a bit disheartening, and we began to grumble a bit about the weatherman. But we pushed on. 
And when we got to Lorient, there was a beautiful opening in the weather. The target was exposed as pretty as you could wish. And we hit it for all we were worth. For which you, of course, thanked the weather service. Well, to be, be honest, Pete, I think we sort of forgot about that opening and kidded them about being wrong in the precipitation and clouds on the way over. But then it's, a, it's sort of hard to get over the weatherman complex you get in peacetime. But then, as I said before, they know how we feel about it. Well, I still find it hard to believe some of those stories we hear over here from both the RAF and the 8th Air Force Airmen like yourself. Stories about flying for hours in clouds so thick you can't see a thing. And then, right over the target area, finding the clouds pushed away, just as the forecasters predicted it would be. And speaking of the RAF, Colonel Musso, I take it you cooperate closely with the RAF. Yes, we certainly do. And let me make it plain that we don't duplicate the RAF weather service, which in itself is a tremendously efficient thing. Our own service and that of the RAF augment each other. You might say that our own service now forms a part of the British Weather Network. You know, Colonel, I can't help but think that the work of your section is doing, the work of Air Force weathermen all over the world, for that matter, is going to mean a lot for civilian life and air travel after the war. There's no question about that. There's bound to be an application of peacetime for all the information being collected in wartime. The studies that have been made of weather conditions and transatlantic flying provide one example. And flights across oceans have become routine under conditions which make it necessary to forecast weather with a minimum of information, with more emphasis on correct analysis. Then, too, we've learned a lot about winds and other conditions of high altitude flying. This should mean a great deal for civilian air travel once we get back to conditions where we can get weather reports from ships as we did before. Then all these men, Colonel, who are being trained in weather forecasting should be of great value when the war is over. A great many of them, certainly. Especially the ones who have gained expert knowledge of climate and weather conditions in parts of the world where air travel was not a common thing. Hmm. Seems to me, Colonel, that your service is going to have some busy days now when the big blow against the continent is struck. We expect that, and we're ready for it. Our only regret is that we can't control the weather instead of forecasting it. I'm sure the captain here feels the same way about that. Uh, if we could control the weather, we'd have the war in Europe finished in no time. Meanwhile, we're just plain happy to know what sort of weather we're going to run into. Seems to me, Captain, that men like yourself must get pretty good yourselves at figuring out the weather. Now, we know what sort of weather we need and want. And we certainly learn how to get impatient while waiting for the forecasters to give the go-ahead signal. And I'll say this, Pete. It's a funny feeling to be up there flying through clouds or rain with a lot of bombs to let go on the target. And then hope for all your worth that the weather is going to be okay when you get to the target. There's a lot of high-grade futility in having to turn back without getting at the target. But as I said before, this doesn't happen very often. And that's where credit goes to the weather service. The weather forecasters did all right by me. I'm sure they did. And so this great work of analyzing weather conditions goes on here in Britain and elsewhere. And at this moment, here in Britain and at Allied airfields all over the world, men are studying, reading, making maps, gathering in all the information they can about weather conditions. In many cases, they're tied with long hours of work, but they keep at it with a determination and a skill that merits applause. And at this moment, somewhere, Allied planes are out to find new targets or to hit at old targets. They may be flying alone or in formation. They may be over cities or out over the lonely skyways of trans-ocean flying. They may be over Italy or Germany or the South Pacific. Wherever they are, the pilots and crews of these planes are up there with a margin of safety and a margin of efficiency, too, for which the weather forecasters are responsible. Someday, when the barriers are down, we'll have the full story of what they're doing, the risks they take to get the information they must have. It's going to be a good story. For the present, this can be said. They're doing their job. They're doing what's expected of them. This is Elmer Peterson saying goodbye on this program until this time next week. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by Elmer Peterson, NBC's veteran observer in the British...
Mr. Peterson is presented each Saturday at this same time over most of these stations. This program came to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.